Well, it's hard to believe we're here, huh? Last Thursday. Felt like a blur. Does it feel like a blur to anybody else? Uh, it that is hard to believe, and almost equally hard to believe is that we're finishing Philippians. Uh, I know that some, like Mike, was were skeptical that we could get it done. Uh, so we're going to be in Philippians four. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter 4, and, you know, I, I mentioned that uh, there's an asterisk on this, and it's, I could not squeeze in the last three verses. Yeah, 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 I know. Um, now, I don't, let me just, this is the sermon before the sermon, okay? That does not mean that those last three verses are not important. They are his farewell we typically skip them. They greet every saint in Christ Jesus. You know, all the saints greet you. It's, grace of our Lord be with you. They're important. The openings and the closings of these letters are important. So don't misinterpret me. I would love to preach a sermon on that. But this is the end of the semester, and we need to close up Philippians. So uh, you can read that for yourselves. He highlights the fact that Caesar's household is greeting them as well. So that's important. I'll stop there. It's part of his theme in the letter. No, I won't stop there. Part of his theme in the letter about the gospel advancing, okay? In the midst of Rome, in the heart of the Roman Empire, all the way to Caesar's household. You can't stop it. Paul writes that with a twinkle in his eye, I'm sure, as he ends the letter. Okay. Well, we're headed into summer break, and for many of you students, I realize not everybody's students, but for many of you students... Summer brings with it the hope of what? Wow, not as unified as I thought. If I were in your shoes, I would think the summer would bring with it the hope of money. The excitement of a little extra capital, right? Yes. For three-fourths of the year, you live poverty-stricken. <laughs> and then, for two months, right? For two months, there's some surplus. And then it all goes away again, you know, when you get back to school. And I know at least that's how, it's, that how, that's how it worked for me when I was uh, in school and in seminary at different times. So, uh, finally got a little surplus and then back to the grind. And if you're not a student... You are already out in the workforce, and you're trying to earn a paycheck, right? You're likely on the front end of a career, or you might still be trying to figure out your niche, you know? You may just be skating by, living paycheck to paycheck, trying to make ends meet, and that's, that's all okay. Whatever the case, whether you're a student or not, here's the common denominator. Most of you probably do not have a ton of money. And that's just the reality of the situation. But the number one lie that people think is that we have to have a lot of money before we can be generous, right? We have to have a lot of money before we can be generous. We think that lots of surplus is what propels generosity. Did you catch that? We often find ourselves thinking surplus and getting surplus is what propels me being generous. 
One day, after I'm well established in my career, Lord willing, I'll have plenty and then I'll be really generous. Or, I can't really afford to be generous right now. I mean, I'm a student or I only have a summer job or whatever it may be. And even after our sermon on Sunday, when we talked about the gift of giving in that spiritual gift series, some of you had questions related to this. Some folks coming up afterwards and were asking me some questions, you know. And it's certainly true that more surplus gives you an opportunity that the person that's living paycheck to paycheck just doesn't have. But it's a mistake to think that you need to wait until you are rich to be generous. Because that's not what the Philippians did. In fact, they're the model for every poor college student. They gave lavishly in spite of their poverty. And so that proves to us that the engine for generosity, the motivation for it, it it lies elsewhere. It's not in whether or not I have resources. It's not contingent on the amount of surplus I have or don't have. I've met rich Christians who are stingy, and I've met poor Christians who are generous. And I think if we were to ask Paul about the, might call it the secret, not just to contentment, but the secret of being generous, what would that secret be? I think he would say it doesn't depend on what you have necessarily. We'll talk about that at the end. It doesn't depend on what you have, but on what you know. It doesn't depend on how much money you possess, but on what you believe. In other words, living generously comes from how we think. Or we could say, who we're trusting in, or what we're trusting in. But when our thinking is dialed in, okay, when we see things for how they really are, we'll be primed to be generous, and no matter our economic status. Again, we'll talk about that at the end. But that's what we're going to see tonight, is this heart of generosity, where it comes from, now, before we just jump into the, this last paragraph here of Philippians, let's get our bearings for a second. You can remember from last week, Paul started wrapping up this letter in chapter 4, verse 10. And he's kind of starting to tie up the letter, and he's, he ends where he begins, remember? He ends by essentially expressing how thankful he is for the money that this church gave him. Paul's in prison, suffering. Epaphroditus comes with the gift and alleviates his need. And so, he opens the letter with, you know, kind of thanking God for them and their partnership with him, and then he ends the letter in the same way. He affirms this church, he gets nostalgic, and he remembers how they've always supported him. But laced throughout these verses are some incredible motivations for us when it comes to being generous. These motivations are going to help you, even as poor college students, to cultivate generous hearts right now, no matter your income status. And these motivations will inspire you to find ways to contribute right here to the church's ministry or to your home church if you're going home. So let's look at the text tonight, and then we'll jump into it. We'll pick it up in verse 14. That's where we left off from last week. Remember, if we go back to verse 10, he starts this this whole thing by rejoicing the Lord greatly that, that the Philippians had 
supplied his need, and then he caveats it by saying, hey, I wasn't discontent before. Um, I'm, I'm, I was perfectly content before you supplied it, but man, I'm thankful that you did. He comes back around to that same thankfulness in verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. But not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul ends the, with the song we sang, to, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. For good measure, we'll read the greeting. Verse 21, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So tonight, we're going to see five motivations. We call it five motivations to become a generous giver. And they're, I said they're like laced in this paragraph. So Paul's basically just kind of recounting their support of him, and he's encouraging them at the end of this letter. But laced in this letter are, are these motivations. I think it's probably what led to the Philippians' gift in the first place. And it's, it's the continued fuel for further giving, not to Paul necessarily, because Paul's saying he doesn't need it anymore, but to other, to other mission endeavors. Okay? Five motivations to become a generous giver. And so the first motivation that we see in this text is that, it's going to sound obvious, but generous giving meets real needs. Generous giving meets real needs. That's pretty intuitive, but it's important to point out here at the outset. Paul wants this church to know their sacrificial generosity had a real-time impact in his life. That's where he picks it back up in verse 14. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of you to share my trouble. Their giving had a real-time and immediate impact in his life. In fact, he says their giving actually helped ease his suffering. They became partners with him in it. He says literally in the Greek text, you did well by taking part in my affliction. You did well by taking part in my affliction. He's affirming them. He's making sure they understand that they met a real-time need that he had. Now, why does he say that here? Well, if you remember back to last week, Paul starts the paragraph by rejoicing in the fact that they had revived their concern for him. But he didn't want them to get the wrong idea. Even though he was in tremendous need, he wasn't discontent and he wasn't anxious about it. He told us last time that he knows how to be strengthened by Christ to endure whatever circumstances that his Lord puts him in. But right here in our verse, he doesn't want them to think that their gift didn't matter. Right? Like, I'm content. Gift doesn't matter. It does matter, he says, and they did well. They imitated Christ and his loving concern for his people. 
And by giving the way they did, they really did enter into Paul's suffering and they helped ease Paul's suffering a little bit. Their giving met a real need. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that's super obvious, okay? But it's easy to forget, um, especially when you give regularly to the church. Sometimes when we think, you know, when we give to the church, we sometimes fall into this trap of thinking, you know, I'm just, just paying the bills, you know, write your check, put it in the offering plate. Like, and that's true. I mean, the bills are getting paid uh, as we give. But if we're not careful, we forget that the money that we're contributing is going to meet real needs right here in this church, too. It's going to alleviate suffering. Meals are provided through your giving. Bills are paid, meaning church members' bills. Members that are in need are helped quietly, but tremendously. And sometimes it even goes to help people that are outside this church as well from practical needs to paying for their counseling to all kinds of things. And if you're a member and you're in need tonight, don't be afraid to let your leaders know. This is part of why the church gives, so we can meet those practical needs. And when you bring this to mind, when you're thinking about, okay, my giving meets real needs right here in the church, that five bucks, and you know that five dollars you're going to give goes to meet a real need, that is incentivizing to give, right? It's, it's sort of the, the prime here, the prime, first motivation that we see. So we've got to remember that giving helps to alleviate the trouble of others. And the Philippians are a shining example to us in that area. But this wasn't the first time they had ever met Paul's needs. In fact, this church has had a history of generosity. In verse 15, Paul gets nostalgic, probably a little teary-eyed, as he thinks back on how generous they've been toward him, and he lets them know that he hasn't forgotten this generosity. Look at this, verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's the region that Philippi is in, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, tucked into these verses, we find a a second motivation, kind of subtle, but it's there. Second motivation for generous giving, and it's this. Not only does our giving meet needs, but our giving also extends the mission, we could say. It extends the mission. In other words, when we make a sacrifice to give, even if it's a little bit, Christ's mission through the church in the world is furthered. It's extended. Evangelism happens more effectively when you give. Churches are planted more frequently when you give. And people are discipled more thoroughly when you give. And when that sinks in, when it sinks in that your possessions can actually be used to extend the mission, you're going to be generous with them. And that's essentially the history of Paul's relationship with this church. From their very first days as a church, they were involved in supporting his mission. They entered into partnership, Paul says, in the beginning of the gospel. It's a very interesting way to put that, by the way, for you nerds. 
It's a, it, I think it's an allusion to the new creation that happened when the church was planted in the beginning of the gospel. He says, when I left, when I left Macedonia, he says in verse 15. So if we go over to Acts chapter 16, you, you see that this generosity started literally from day one with Lydia. She was the first convert in Philippi. And once she came to faith, she immediately offered her home as a base for Paul's team. And later, it became the church building. And then when he left their region, the region of Macedonia, it says here that they sent him off with more resources. And in fact, Paul says that this church was the only church to do that. That's a staggering thought. He says, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Whoa! I would think that Paul's coming around, we would want to support the guy. You know? Uh, the father of the faith, one of the greatest apostles that ever lived, but one church, and a poor church. That's like God's, God's methods, right? Like, that's, that's kind of how he works. Um, talk about a lifeline. Literally, that's Paul's only supporting church. And he mentions how they had supported him at several points during, during his tenure. He says, even at Thessalonica, which means that probably they supported him at other places too. We've got other evidence of that as well. Now, it's kind of a side note. This doesn't mean that Paul never worked like a secular job as a church planter. Even though the Philippians supported him, even in Thessalonica, he chose to work. So why does he do that? Well, he might have needed to supplement their giving a little bit, potentially. But the major motivator for Paul was to be an example to his new converts of what it means to work hard. He wants to be able to present the gospel free of charge to them. And he knew that his new Thessalonian converts had been lazy prior to their conversion. And Paul wanted to model for them what hard work looked like. It's a great shepherd. And so their giving met his practical needs, yeah, like point number one here, but it also extended the mission. It kept him preaching the gospel free of charge. In fact, listen to what he tells the Corinthians. Because basically, Philippi bankrolled Paul so he could go preach to the Corinthians. Listen to what he says. This is um, 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9. <clears throat> he says, did I commit a sin? In humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? Listen to this. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone because the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's this region of Philippi, they supplied my need. So I refrained, and I will refrain, from burdening you in any way. The Philippians were his lifeline. So when it comes to cultivating a generous heart for you and I, we have to realize that our giving really does extend Christ's mission on earth. And when that sinks in, we will be proactive in finding ways to give, even if it's just a little bit. So let me try to, try to connect some dots for you. Show you how as something as boring as giving the church budget is actually doing this very thing, okay? 
When you give, that helps pay the utilities, which allows us to have a building which facilitates people coming to hear the Word of God. And some of you sitting here were converted when you came into this building and heard the Gospel. Those of you who gave, we're going to see, share in the fruit of those conversions by helping keep the doors open. Not only that, but your giving goes to support the paid pastors here, myself included. Do you realize that that frees up a minimum, minimum, of 250 hours per week, based on all the shepherds here, 250 hours per week for direct shepherding, for direct equipping of you for things like study, this sermon, counseling, evangelism, mentoring, training, writing, planning. That extends the mission of the church, don't you think? It does. And that's just the mission right here in Lynchburg. Our church budget also supports training future pastors and missionaries right here in TES. And do you realize that when you give, you're helping fund the training of more evangelists and shepherds to be sent to the nation? Your giving helps fund our professors at the seminary, our library books, our technology we use for the classroom, and not just the training, but the launching as well. For the last several years, do you know what your elders have been doing with the money that the church is giving? The elders have been allocating from your giving a launch fund for Michael Laurie. Michael Laurie is a contemporary of mine at TES. He's a seasoned shepherd. He teaches Quinonia class. He's been here for shepherding for five, six years now. And he and his family are ready to go to China. The Lord's opened the door, and there's money there to send him. You know why? Because the church has been giving. We've trained him, and he's ready to go. He, he's, he's launching to China in July of this year to extend the mission. And what made that happen, at least in part, is your giving to the general budget. And if you want to give directly to Michael, you can do that. Uh, just go on the church website and click the missions tab and type his name in the memo line. You know, L-A-U-R-Y. I will be presenting that to you often, so get used to that. Tell your friends. All right. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other ways that we extend the mission by being generous with our possessions. Besides just giving to the general budget, okay? And one way that you guys do this, and you do it well, is by giving rides to people, right, to come here. And I just want to connect dots, okay? I want to connect dots for you. Do you realize you're actively extending the mission of the church by being generous with your vehicle, your gas, right? It's expensive. People are hearing the Word of God. The Spirit is using this place to build them up. And these are normally people who wouldn't otherwise be connected to a local church. Your wheels are literally their lifeline for growth. That is an incredible way to give. And I see so many of you being hospitable with what you've got, whether that's an apartment or a home or a dorm room. And you are actively extending the mission when you open your space to other people. Because think about this. So much sin happens when we are alone. Right? So much sin happens when we are alone. Because people feel like they do not belong 
especially young people, single folks in the church. They don't have that family to go back to. And so when we open our homes, we are extending the mission. There's belonging. We can be generous with our homes, with our meals. We can welcome others into our lives with that open generosity. When God's people experience our love, God's people realize there's hope, and they are encouraged to battle sin. They're not alone. So the next time that you're tempted to resent having to go pick up that new student who wants to come to Boundless, I know none of you resent that, right? Like, if you ever like, ah, I gotta go, gotta go get him again. Just think, when I'm generous like this, Christ is using me to actively extend His mission. When this perspective sinks in, that will really motivate your generosity. Now, I've been talking about a lot about the church budget, okay? I know what you're thinking. Hopefully not, but maybe. He's just wanting to increase the church bottom line, right? Like just pad the, pad the church coffers a little bit. But let me assure you, there is something else that is motivating me. Not to mention that my income is fixed. I don't automatically get a raise if the giving increases, okay? Fun fact. <laughs> but there's something else that's motivating me, okay? I've learned from Paul that giving isn't just good for others. It's not just good for the mission, but it's actually good for the giver. It's actually good for the giver. In other words, generosity benefits you. And that's our third motivation. It increases eternal reward. And here's where it starts getting intense. Look in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Meaning, I don't, I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm, I'm laying it on thick. I'm affirming you, okay, right? But I don't want you to misinterpret me. No, it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. If we're going to be consistently generous with our stuff, we have to know that we are not losing when we give it away. That we are investing in something better. You have to know that. You are not losing when you give your stuff away. You are investing in something better. And that's what Paul says here in verse 17. Since he just spent time affirming how generous they've been to him, he wants to make sure his affirmation isn't taken the wrong way. Paul's saying something like, it's not that I'm pandering after your gifts as I affirm you. That's not what I'm ultimately after. He's not affirming them so they'll give more gifts to him personally. In fact, he's going to go on to say he's fully provided for. Like, he doesn't want them giving anymore. Think, stop. You know, I don't need anything else from you. I'm fully provided for. So why is he affirming them here? What's he after? Well, Paul tells us what he's seeking. He says he's seeking the fruit which increases to your credit or to your account. Now, this little phrase is very important, and it's worth us unpacking here for a second, so let's, let's do that. Paul is after what he describes here as fruit. Don't want to leave anything to assumption. What is he talking about when he says fruit? Because it could mean a couple different things. 
Well, I think in this context, he's probably talking about what the Lord produces through his own ministry. Okay? Hang with me. What the Lord produces through Paul's own ministry, the fruit, quote-unquote, of conversions, the fruit of spiritual growth in the church. Why do I say that? Well, earlier in the letter, when Paul was going to go, he's going back and forth around whether he should die and be with Christ, whether he should stay here a little bit longer on earth, kind of what, what would he prefer if he could choose, you know. He says it's a hard choice, but he acknowledges that if he sticks around in this life, it means, quote, fruitful labor for him. Chapter 1, verse 22. It means fruitful labor for him. If he lives this life, if he goes on living, it means fruitful labor. That fruitful labor, no doubt, includes more converts. But it also includes the growth of the Philippians. Or as he says it just a few verses later, it includes their progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 25. So you can think of fruit as the conversion and the moral transformation of God's people in this context. Okay? The conversion, the moral transformation of God's people. And Paul says, that's what I'm after. That's what's motivating me. But here's the twist. He says that, after, that he's after the fruit that accrues not to his account, but to theirs. And here's what I think he's saying. Because the Philippians were generous, because they met Paul's need, the fruit that results from his ministry is shared fruit. It's fruit that they too will be rewarded for. And that's a crazy thought. Or we should say, a motivating thought. This is a deep motivation to be generous. When we get involved, when we give, when we're generous, say, in the material support of Michael Laurie and his family, any spiritual fruit that accrues through his ministry in China is also connected to your account. You, in a very real way, are a co-laborer beside of Michael because your money was a means the Lord used to produce that fruit. Which means that on that final day, you too will be rewarded along with Michael for the fruit in his ministry. And so our sacrificial giving, if we're seeing it through the scriptural eyes, if we're seeing it through this lens, is really not a sacrifice at all. It is an investment. And in fact, it's not just one investment among many that we could make. It is the very best investment we could make. Jesus says that when we use our earthly resources for His eternal kingdom, when we give our resources away, humanly speaking, we're not losing them. He says we're actually providing ourselves. Listen to the language. We're providing for ourselves, Luke 12, providing for ourselves money bags that won't grow old. We're providing for ourselves, he says, treasure in heaven 
Treasure that does not fail with a stock market crash. Treasure that cannot be stolen or destroyed. Treasure that can't be squandered by grandchildren. This is an eternal treasure. It is an eternally protected investment in things that are eternal. An investment in all that is truly real. An investment that has an incredible and guaranteed ROI. The fruit, think about it, the fruit transcends this age. And it carries over into the new creation. The one that will last where we will enjoy it forever. I've said this a hundred times, but you're playing Catan, right? And you're in the game. Change the, change the illustration. Catan's better than Monopoly. <laughs> you're in the game, and you're playing the game. And you get wrapped up in the game. You want to win the game. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, you want to buy some real resources with that? With that Catan, those Catan? You want to trade for some, not just like a little plastic house, but a real house, you know, a little, little city, real city? And I can do that. Yeah, you can. The game's going to look a lot different. Probably going to lose the game, right? But not really. The game's over. The board closes, and then you have a real house. This game's going to close. All that we spend our money and time on for our pleasures and things, and we're going to see that in, in, at the end. It's not, it's not inherently bad but it will close. There's a timestamp on this life. And unless we do it for Christ as a steward of his resources, it will perish. And all of our hope for eternal investment with it. We get one shot at this thing. And if that perspective sinks in for you, that your giving is investing, that you are increasing eternal reward each time you give in faith, that will fuel your generosity. You'll be like the, the poor Philippians who were begging Paul, begging Paul, let me get in on this investment. It's so tempting to think that I'm losing this money when I give it away. I've told some of you, if we do premarital, I'll tell, tell our premarital folks this. Early on in my marriage, my budget, actually this was before I was married, I was a single guy, I had in my budget, under the same category, I had investing, that was the bigger category. And then there was like actual saving and investing, earthly speaking, and giving. My giving was under that category. I was trying to train myself to think in those, in those ways. It's so hard to, to think in that, that way. We think we lose our money when we give it away. Or at the very least, we think somebody else is benefiting from this money, which is true and encouraging. But to know that even I will benefit one day. I will benefit, and in a much more profound way than I could ever imagine, in an eternal way, from this very act of generosity. That is massively incentivizing. We either believe that or we don't. 
And that's why Paul, quoting his Lord, can say, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not just like a feel-good statement. Paul knew that all giving is investing. Acts 20.35. Now, as motivating as all this is to think of, uh, of how we can be more generous, there's more in the passage. Uh, we're only three-fifths of the way through, okay? Paul wants us to make sure that we understand that as we give generously, this pleases the Lord. Okay, this pleases the Lord. Look in verse 18. Paul writes, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So when Paul's writing this, he wants the Philippians to know their gift is completely taking care of his needs. And I think, kind of get a little dangerous, but if we start reading between the lines here, I think, you know, anytime that you affirm somebody and they love you and you're affirming something good they do, they just do more of it, right? So in this case, Paul's affirming these people. They love him. And so the temptation, Paul's like, I don't want them to give me more money. Like, they're already poor. I want them to, <laughs> I think that's probably happening behind the scenes. He knows he's taken care of. So he's saying, look, I'm well supplied. I'm, I'm fully provided for. But even here, he wants them to see that their gift is something more significant than simply meeting his need. It is a form of worship to God. He frames up their financial gift. He frames this up in in worship categories, in the very sacrificial language of the Old Testament. And he says it's a sacrifice that God accepts and delights in. Now, just to kind of get our bearings here on, on this language, let's take a second and revisit sacrifices in the Old Testament. Okay? Real quick, okay, don't worry. You're like, hmm, prove it, Clay. <laughs> Under the old covenant, the sacrificial system was repetitive, and it provided, you can think of it as like a provisional atonement. A provisional atonement for Israel's sins against the covenant. Year after year, the priests would offer these sacrifices. The people would offer them, the priests would offer them, day of atonement would come around. And ultimately, the sacrifices could never truly cleanse the people's hearts. At least not in any lasting way. It did provide real atonement, but you can think of it as a provisional atonement. There wasn't any lasting change. In other words, the sacrifices were not transformative. Just look at the history of Israel. This whole system pointed to the need for a greater, more climactic sacrifice. It pointed to to one that would finally and fully forgive sins and provide transforming power. And this is what our Lord accomplished. And that's why Paul can use this exact phrase that we see in Philippians, this exact phrase to describe Christ's death in Ephesians 5.2. Listen to the language. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, here it is, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering. Same phrase as in our text. God smelled the offering of Christ, kind of metaphorically, and God was satisfied in that offering. He fully delighted in His Son, and His death on the cross fully accomplished our forgiveness. 
And it was the final and transformative sacrifice that we needed. And now God is pleased with us because He is pleased with His Son. That sacrifice was a, a, a pleasing aroma to Him. But here in Philippians 4, Paul says that it is our giving, right? It's our generosity that pleases God. That's the sweet-smelling sacrifice. And that's because in Christ, our acts of obedience are now acceptable to the Father. They're acceptable to Him because we're obeying in faith. Now, this is sweet, okay? This is a sweet encouragement to us because it wasn't always this way. Outside of Christ, before we came to know Him, and we were trying to please God, we were doing it out of fear, trying to earn His favor. And all of our attempts to please the Lord outside of Christ are attempts to earn His favor, that Paul says that's got to go and flip back in Philippians 3. There were attempts to earn our way into the family of God. There were our attempts to make ourselves right with Him, to boast in ourselves, and that's pride. It's saying that we don't need the sacrifice of Christ. Or it's saying, at the very least, that his sacrifice wasn't completely sufficient. So we need to add to it with our works, we think, if we're going to secure our place, right? God's going to be pleased. But nothing could be further from the truth. Christ has earned every bit of righteousness that we need. And so we have to leave our filthy rags at the door, those, those works, so we can receive his righteousness with his open, open hands. But now that we are in Christ, now that we've been forgiven and cleansed by His sacrifice, now that we've been clothed in His righteousness, get this, our obedience is pleasing to Him. Now why is that? They're acceptable to the Lord. They bring Him tremendous delight. They are our own response of love and gratitude for what He's done for us. They're not our attempt to get in the family. And when it comes to our generous giving, Paul wants to make sure that we understand that God is delighted when we share. He loves it. It smells sweet to him as we love like Christ has loved us, as we're generous the way Christ has been generous with us. And this is a huge motivator to be generous. To know that in Christ, this is going to be pleasing to the Lord. We're so tempted to think that God is just constantly disappointed with us. That He's always frustrated with us. We can't ever do anything right because we're so sinful. But Paul, he's not saying that. He knows we're a work in progress. Paul's told us that. Paul's a work in progress, right? He's already told us that back in chapter 3. But he's saying here that God is actually pleased. He's delighted. Deeply delighted in our attempts to obey. When you attempt to be generous, or when you have that person over, you give that that little bit of your summer paycheck in faith, right? When you do that, God is absolutely delighted. Are you perfect? No. But Christ is. And His righteousness clothes you. 
And in Christ, even your attempts at obedience are delighted in by the Father. So let the anticipation of His smile motivate your generosity. Now, this passage obviously is extremely motivating, um, but there's still one question that's probably been lingering in your minds. What about me? Right? Like, I'm poor. Reality check. What if something unforeseen happens and I need that $5 that I gave to missions last week? That's a legitimate question and probably very relevant. We're going to address some of that practically in just a minute, but often what hinders us, key in on this, what hinders us from being generous when we have something to give is that sneaking impulse to hoard it out of fear. It's that impulse to be stingy because we've got to take care of ourselves. But what Paul says next, how he ends this passage, sets us free from this fear. It's our fifth and final motivation tonight. We could say generous giving is backed by God's provision. Generous giving is backed by God's provision. It really is incredible. In verse 19, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends this paragraph with a wonderful and liberating promise. Encouraging us to trust in our God who promises to provide for every single one of our needs. This is one of the greatest promises in Scripture. If we sink our teeth into this promise, we'll find it's the very truth we need to liberate us from greed, from fear, from that self-preservation, So let's quickly just look at the details of this promise. Notice first that the promise is comprehensive. You see it? Paul's God, he says, will fulfill our every need. Paul does not hold back, and he does not caveat his statement. He wants the church to be confident in God's care, and God's abundant provision. Do you realize that right now, God knows every single one of your true needs? Do you know that He knows what you need most? And He knows that way better than you do. Do you know that He knows what you need way before you know what you need? He does, and He has pledged to meet those needs. Notice also that He is beyond capable of meeting our needs. He has pledged to meet them out of His infinite account. Or as Paul says here, according to the riches, according to His riches in glory. 
As the eternal and self-existent creator, God owns all there is. He is the wealthiest being that exists. He is robed in regal glory with every resource at his disposal. He needs absolutely nothing, and no one can stop him from providing. And he loves to do it. He provides out of this infinite storehouse, and he promises to supply it. Now, this raises a very interesting question, doesn't it? What is a need? Right? And the answer is not as straightforward as you might think. I spent a long time thinking about this. A need might look different in different contexts. A need for someone in Cambodia might be clean water for survival. And that might look quite different than a need for someone in Europe. Say they got hired at a new firm, don't have any money to their name, drop their smartphone, it shatters, and they need a smartphone for their, their job, and they can't afford one. Two totally different things, right? <laughs> if you were to boil it down, you might say that a need is something necessary for survival, like food, clothing, or shelter. But what happens when God doesn't seem to, pro to provide that? And his people are caught in the midst of some calamity, like a civil war or some natural disaster, and they go hungry, and his people starve to death. Or they're thrown in prison, say, like Paul, the one who's writing this. They go days without a meal. And Paul, of all people, knew that as God's children, we are not immune from suffering. We're not immune from homelessness, from being deprived of what seems like the essentials of life, things like food and clothing. So as I thought hard about this, I thought, you know, what, what would Paul say? How would he define this? And I think he would define a need as something that is required for us to fulfill God's purpose for us. I think he would say a need is something that is required for us to fulfill God's purposes for us, meaning what God has planned. God promises here to provide those things we lack that hinder us from fulfilling his purpose. And many times we think we need certain things. But God withholds them from us because he has his purpose. <laughs> and it's a greater purpose. And so to him, the th that thing that we think we need, we really don't. Even if it's something as basic as food. Sometimes he delays to meet a legitimate need so that we lean on him in a more profound way than we did before. 
and sometimes for His good purposes, He may let His children starve to death. And even if we die, even if by the world's standards it seems that we are not cared for, that temporary suffering, as horrid as it was, served His good purpose. You think, how? Because it took us by the hand and it led us to eternal relief. It led us to eternal joy, to eternal and abundant provision in the arms of our Savior. Our purpose was done. What appears to be a lack of provision leads us to death, which breaks open in the greatest provision imaginable in the new creation. And that's because God has already provided for our greatest and most fundamental need. And it's not food, and it's not clothing. It's not a job after graduation. As important as these things are, He has provided for our alienation from Him. Our estrangement from our Creator due to our rebellion is our greatest need. And He has provided redemption in Christ. He has secured our eternal destiny in Him. And we will pass through death and judgment unscathed into eternal glory. And so Paul says here that God promises to provide all we need in virtue of our union with Christ. He is our God and He will care for us even temporally until we have finished His purpose. What a promise. Do you know what that promise does? Right? It wasn't in my notes. That opens our hands. It motivates us to be generous. We have a Father who has already cared for us in the most fundamental way and has pledged to continue to care for us even to the basics of life until our purpose is through. This frees us from fear of the unknown. To trust the God who knows the future, who has ordained the future, and all of your needs. It frees us from that fear to be generous in ways that please Him, trusting Him to take care of all of our needs. And what a final motivation to be generous. And finally, in verse 20, it's like Paul can't contain himself anymore. As he thinks about all this, as he thinks about the way God moved the Philippians to meet his practical needs, his needs in real time, as he thinks about the way that God's caused the mission to advance through their giving, the way that God's going to reward the Philippians in the new creation, the way he's absolutely pleased with their generosity, the way he's promised to provide for all they need in the here and now, the only response from Paul is to God be the glory forever. To our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen.
said the man in prison. Right? Said the man who faced starvation. What a way to end the letter, okay? So now, as we wrap this up, the danger of preaching a message like this to impressionable and zealous young people like yourselves is that you leave here, you take a vow of poverty, and you give all that you have to TBC. That would not be good, okay? Or you go work all summer and you think I'm telling you to give it all away. That is not what we are after here, not in the least. So let me take just a second and round out the sermon with a few practical principles when it comes to stewardship more broadly, all right? Practical considerations. Get your pens out. This is going to be fast. Sermon number two. Freeloading is bad. Okay? It's principle number one. Freeloading is bad. It's a bad thing. Laziness, not good. Okay? The Bible's super clear on this. If you give away what you have and then you become dependent on others, it's not good. And that's because, well, hard work and surplus is good. Work with your own hands, Paul says, and be dependent on no one. I didn't even have that one in there. First Thess 4. If someone's unwilling to work, Paul says they should not eat. And Christians should work quietly and earn their own living. Ephesians 4 talks about no longer stealing, but working hard with your hands to have something to share with those that are in need. So you're working for a surplus. Hard work and surplus is good. All right? Number three, you are a steward of the money that God has provided. You are a steward of the money that God has given you. What that means is it's not ultimately your money. The money came from God, and it belongs to God, and he's given it to you to steward for his purposes. Okay, so you think, what are those? Well, God gives us broad categories for how we steward our money, or his money. Okay, so broad categories, and it starts with providing the basics for ourselves and our families. You can write down 1 Timothy 5.8, I didn't put that in there. Provide the basics for ourselves and our families. If we're not able to meet our own or our own family's needs, we don't need to be giving to others yet. Kind of basic principle here. Now, you can caveat that. You're investing in education. You're taking out loans. I get that. Hopefully, those are low interest rates and those are deferred repayments. But I understand there's, there's some complexity here, but I, just at the basic level, starts for, it, it starts when God wants us to work hard for a surplus, it starts with providing the basics for ourselves and our families. And once there's a surplus, it can go to some of the following things, like giving generously and freely. And I would, I would say I would start with that. I would start with that, even if it's just a little bit that you're giving. Give generously and freely. It would include saving for the future or investing in the future. You can save by faith, right? 
And that's a good and wise principle. The Proverbs teach us much about that. Saving for or investing in the future. And we could even add a third category. Well, actually, I don't think that's right. All right, hang on. I think we got that. Yeah, those should be sub. Those should be points five and six. Okay, I'm gonna throw a third one in there. All right, whatever it is, fourth one in there. Um, enjoying from the surplus, meaning God gives us broad categories for how we steward our money, providing our own basics, giving generously and freely, saving for investing in the future, and then enjoying from the surplus. First Timothy six seventeen. God's no killjoy, and He delights to give His children good things. And that verse says he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there is, you can enjoy, you can enjoy the surplus that you've given. As long, I would say, giving needs to be up there at the top of that list. Now this should be number five, okay? Practice giving now for your own heart's sake. Practice giving right now. Whenever you earn income and have a little bit of surplus, and do that now, even if you have loans. Now, that even if you have loans part, some people might disagree with me on that. But the reason I'm saying that is this will help train your heart now. Like, we don't need your $5 or whatever. Just roughly, I'm saying this for you, okay? This will help train your heart Luke 12.34. Because Luke 12.34 says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus' point in Luke 12.34 is that where we're investing, where we're giving our money to, we're a lot more concerned. Our hearts are tied to that thing that we're putting money in. And so if you're not giving at all to the church, but there is a little bit of surplus, then your heart, the giving itself will, will, will magnetize your heart toward the kingdom of God because you've got more at stake in it. And so if you're going to pr- practice this, this giving, this proportionate giving now, this implies that you need some way of figuring out what's coming in and out. Most people call this a budget. Okay? If you don't have any idea about that, we've got people that can help you. Okay? But just understanding how to, how to map out what's coming in to my account, what's coming out of my account, how do I know if I have a surplus? Am I just kind of winging it and hoping that enough's there? You know, which is how a lot of people live. I would say you can, there's, you can get a lot more concrete data than, than just hoping that there's going to be money there, that there's going to be enough there. So I would encourage you to think through a budget. And then the last thing, this would be number six. Yeah, I think number six. Is what matters is the heart behind your giving, not the amount. It's the heart behind your giving. So if you want to cultivate generosity, it starts with the way, we're, the way we should think in this, you know, kind of what Paul's telling us here at the end of Philippians. It starts in our thinking and renewing our minds and giving out of faith, even if it's small. And again, it doesn't have to be regular, so if you don't, you don't work during the semesters and you're going to go home and you're going to work full-time over the summer, don't just bank that. Like, give a little bit of that to your home church, wherever. But just give, give a little bit of that. It doesn't have to be 10%, right? There's no, the Bible doesn't put any numbers on this. Just give. Practice the open-handed generosity with just a little bit of what you have. 
and the Lord will begin to work through that, through that way. All right? We're going to wrap it up here, but uh, it's been a sweet privilege uh, to work through this letter with you guys. It's been transformative for me, and uh, I trust it has been for you as well. I think it has been just hearing you talk, but uh, man, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It, and it's, he provides exactly what we need, doesn't he? All right, so let's pray.